0: My name is Eli Finley. I'm the youth pastor here at the church, and I'm glad to be preaching for you this weekend. Um, And I'm going to be preaching out of Luke chapter 9. So Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, if you'd like to open your Bibles there, click to turn to, because I know all of our Bibles are on our phones and iPads now. Click to Luke chapter 9. That's where we'll be. And I'll give you a little bit of a disclaimer about this message as we approach the text this morning. Uh, This message is a little bit like cookies, okay, specifically chocolate chip cookies, and here's why, because chocolate chip cookies are a really good dessert when they're raw and uncooked, and they're, they're a really good dessert when they're baked, uh, the amount of time that they're supposed to be in the oven, and this sermon is somewhere uh, in the middle of that. It's somewhere in the half-baked stage. I was planning to share it with you two weeks from now. I was planning to uh, preach this message for you December 18th and 19th, but here we are. We're here now, and so are you guys good if we just pursue the Spirit this morning? Are you good if we just pursue the Lord and open the scriptures together? Is that good with you? Then let's do that. Let me pray, and then we'll read Luke chapter 9. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we love you and we trust you, and we just simply want to make Jesus' name great this morning. Lord, I pray that you just hide me behind your cross and shut my mouth that your spirit would speak this morning. May the meditations of our heart and the words of our mouth be ever pleasing in in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Jesus, it's in your holy and precious name we pray amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, they say this. As the disciples were traveling on the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then Jesus said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those that are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so this weekend, what I'd like to preach for you is is a Christianese word, a Christianese word. So here's what a Christianese word is, for those of us, so that we can all track together. Here's what a Christianese word is. It's a word that we throw around a lot as Christians, that we use a lot in church, uh, that we may kind of understand the implication of, but we may not really have a definition of and a full and deep understanding of. And so I have a really good example of this, um, of, of a Christianese phrase that we use a lot in prayer. I've used a lot in prayer. I've heard it used a lot in prayer. It is the phrase, a hedge of protection. Now, the spiritual meaning of this, it's not lost on me. Uh, we're praying for protection over somebody. I'm with that. I understand that. We should do that more often. Let's pray for protection all the time for people. But when we really think about this phrase, a hedge of protection around somebody, if I wanted to pray protection around somebody, I'm, I'm praying for a cement wall, 20 foot fences, barbed wire. Like, like, I want all of the thick protection materials and not a hedge. I, I just feel like a hedge of protection. Logically, doesn't track all the way for me, but the phrase itself has a beautiful spiritual meaning, and that's a good thing. But that's a good example of a Christianese word, something that, that we understand the implications of, even if the definition is kind of lost on us a little bit. Okay? I believe that the word discipleship has become a Christianese word in our culture and in our day. And here's why, because you you have used it plenty, I'm sure. You've used it in context. You have heard it talked about. You've probably heard the word discipleship probably most of the weeks that you've attended a service at Fellowship of the Rockies. You've heard this word discipleship. But I believe that, that if discipleship is more defined by Jesus and the story that we just read, then it looks a little bit different than maybe the discipleship that we have talked about and maybe the discipleship that we have seen amongst American evangelical churches, at the very least in my experience. Now, all I have experienced is American evangelical churches, so I'm relatively familiar. I can't speak for other churches, but I know that discipleship for me and in my journey has looked different than what this story in Luke 9 depicts discipleship and following Jesus as. And so we have to do some searching here. We have to do some digging to be able to understand what discipleship is in Jesus' view, and not just in our own view. It is important for us as as followers of Christ, if we are going to be disciples and apprentices of Jesus, to understand what that word actually means. And I believe that this passage is gonna help us to begin to understand that. All three of the men who approach Jesus in this passage, they all have misunderstandings. They they all have misguided thoughts about what discipleship is. They all have things that need to be challenged, and Jesus challenges those things. And it's a very important understanding very important story if we were to understand what it means to be disciples of the man Jesus of Nazareth. And in this moment, I'll be honest, Jesus' approach to discipleship seems almost the opposite of what we do see in traditional American churches today. And and here's why. is because you'll hear it from my mouth, you'll hear it from from many pastors' mouths, that we will beg you to be discipled. We will beg this of you. We will beg you to be discipled. We will open our doors at every possible moment. We will create programs, studies, all of these things centered around discipleship, and we will beg you to participate. And yet when I see this story of Jesus, it seems that his reaction to these men is kind of the opposite. Where Jesus is sought out with fervor. These men are following him on their own. He is sought out with fervor. He doesn't respond with affirmation. He doesn't fully respond with affirmation. And we need need to see, we need to be able to track the logic and be able to search and dig here to find what Jesus is trying to say to these men and what he's trying to say about discipleship. Because his understanding seems to be maybe a little bit different the way we use the word discipleship. So let me set the stage a little because I want to walk through a few of the misunderstandings that each of these men had and I want, I want each of these underlying assumptions that they have to be able to speak to us as well. And so, so each of these men are following Jesus down the road to Jerusalem. So here's what's happened is Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem right before he says he has this interaction with the three men and they're going through a Samaritan village and the Samaritan people run Jesus and the disciples off and the disciples want to like rain down hellfire on this place and Jesus rebukes them and says no and they continue on the road and that's when this interaction happens. And so these three men have chosen and been very intentional about following Jesus on the road. They've gotten onto the road with him, okay? And the best example that I have for this is is actually about emails, okay? I'm going to make a real-world example. So there's this email company that I've received emails from almost daily for a very long time now, and I have no idea. I have no clue how they got my email address. It's completely unsolicited. I did not, I do not remember signing up for this company's email addresses ever in my life. But they sell like like custom t-shirt designs and custom prints and, and, and like custom stickers and mugs and stuff like that. And they've got me pegged as a youth pastor because I want all of those items. But I seriously do not remember ever signing up for the email list that they have. And I receive it emails all the time, and I can't figure out how to get unsubscribed, and so I've given up trying to unsubscribe. Okay, that is the opposite of the situation that's happening in the scripture here. I did not sign up for these emails that I'm receiving every day. These people have fervently and intentionally decided to be on the road with Jesus. Jesus has not come up unsolicited to these men, pointed, them, pointed at them, and said, follow me. In fact, that would be more like the original calling of, of many of the disciples, was that Jesus approached them Peter's a good example of this. Peter is doing his job. He's he's fishing. He's out on the boats, doing what his career was. And Jesus approaches him unsolicited and says, Peter, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Peter puts down everything aside and follows Jesus. All right? That's not what's happening in this situation. We're turning that around. These disciples have sought out Jesus. They have sought him out. And so they have a legitimate level of understanding and desire to be discipled to follow Jesus himself. And so that, but it's here, it's on this road that they're fervently pursuing Jesus, that their misunderstandings about what that actually means, what it actually means to be discipled, and what it actually means to follow Jesus, it's, it's there that their misunderstandings about that is exposed. Their underlying assumptions, their predisposed beliefs are exposed to not be correct. And I believe that we can learn a lot about their conversation with Christ. And so, Let's talk about each one individually. So the third man, or sorry, the first man. Why would I start with third? The first man. I don't know where that happened. The first man who approaches Jesus offers himself up freely to Jesus. He says, "Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go." And Jesus kind of discourages him from that. He says, "Foxes have dens, birds have nests, and I have no pillow. I have no place to to rest my head. I have no place to be home at." And so Jesus says, well, if you want to, you're going to have to give up comfort. And this man has has no response to that. There's no documented response that this first man has to Jesus saying that to him. And here's why. It's because this man wants to follow Jesus, but he has not counted the cost. He has not counted the cost of what it will mean to be Jesus' disciple. I can see him just stopping in his tracks the moment that Jesus says, I don't have a place to call home, man. And you're going to have to give up those comforts if you want to follow with me. I can just see him just stopping his tracks, no response. He stops following. It doesn't really say that in the text, but we can infer there's, there's no response here. We don't know where this man's faith ended up, but we know on this day he had a misunderstanding about what discipleship truly was. I have a very vivid uh, memory about the price of something stopping me in my tracks. It happened a week ago today. Last Sunday, I was at Universal Studios last Sunday in Florida, and it was incredible. And I fulfilled the lifelong dream of going to Harry Potter World, okay? I traveled 2,000 miles to go to a wedding and then go to Harry Potter World, okay? So I was at Universal Studios a week ago, and uh, I went to, I, I was trying to fulfill the other part of this lifelong dream is, is to get a wand at Harry Potter World, okay? And here's why it's really cool is because in Harry Potter World, if you buy one of the wands, and you stand in certain spots and point at certain buildings like things happen, and it'll interact with you, it's magical, okay? It's absolutely magical. And I have desired this for some time. It's probably the easiest way that I can put that. I've desired it for a long time. Uh, well, we, we go into Ollivander's workshop, which if you don't know who that is, he's the wand maker in, in the show. It's not important. I'm showing how much of a nerd I am. That's fine. I'm good with that. Gladly will I tell you about all I know about Harry Potter. Uh <laughs> We were in the wand shop, okay, and they, they, it's really honestly manipulation is what I'll say it is because they do this little, like, um, like they kind of reenact the movie scene for you, uh, and so they, they take this kid who's in the room, and they, you know, this kid has the wand pick her and stuff, and then we go into the shop, and, and so I go into the shop, and I find the wand that's perfect, and I want it, and it chose me, okay, <laughs> and they don't have price tags on the wands. They don't. So I had to go to the register and ask the guy, $59.99. Let me tell you, that stopped me in my tracks, okay? And if I had the wand, I would have it with me here, okay? I didn't buy the wand. okay? It never occurred to me, never occurred to me that I would travel 2,000 miles to this place to go buy a wand, and it would actually be too expensive. It never occurred to me. And I also thought I would pay whatever price it took to get it, and I was wrong. $60 $60 was too much. And I can just see this man on the road thinking that, that he could just choose this life like a career path. Just choose to be a disciple and it would, and it would just work out. But Jesus says, no, there's a cost to this. And I can just imagine him saying, $60, Jesus? No, just kidding. That was the one. So it stops him in his track. And it's the first misunderstanding, a mistake that we cannot make when we approach the cross and we approach grace and we approach discipleship. We must count the cost of what that will mean in our life. We must count the cost of what that will mean in our day, in our life, what it will mean for us. And what Jesus says specifically to this person, he refers to comfort. It will cost us comfort. It will. That is part of Following Christ, that is part of taking up our cross. And I'll talk more about that. I'm totally getting ahead of myself, but that is part of the cost that we must understand is that our comfort comes second to the call of Jesus. The second man who approaches Jesus is, is just on the road with Jesus. And this and this part of the story kind of reflects more of what happens with the other disciples. So Jesus points to this second man and he says, You follow me. And this man's response is first let me go and bury my father. Now, in this part of the story, there's a little bit more nuance, a little bit more digging that we have to do because this situation is a little bit deeper than what's happened with the first guy. With the first guy, it's it's a little bit simpler because he just hasn't considered the cost and he has no response to Jesus. Well, this man is kind of considering the cost and, and saying, you know what, I, I have some other things right now that I need to take care of. And so there's more nuance to what he's saying here. When he says, first let me go and bury my father, uh, there's very specific Jewish tradition and law around interring the parents, okay? And so that process looks like this. If, if your father were to pass away, he would be buried within 24 hours or so of, of his death, okay? And so, so for the man to say, first let me go and bury my, my father, it's likely that his father's not dead yet. His dad has not passed yet. Okay, So his father is likely alive, headed towards death in their home. Okay, And so the man is saying, I need to go and bury my father. Okay, And so he is allowed and chosen to have family responsibilities come above the call of Jesus. But, but there's also something here uh, that, that Jesus doesn't call out and the man doesn't call out either. But we kind of have to infer based on the situation uh, is that this man uh, knows that his father is going to pass pretty imminently. Otherwise, he wouldn't be saying, let me go and bury him first. Uh, th- there's an element of this man having to be with the family and with his father to receive his inheritance. There's an inheritance that this man is more than likely going to receive the moment that he inters his father and goes through this process and receives the blessings of the father. Okay? That's part of this process. And so there are two things. There are two things on this man's agenda that, is he, that he has decided to put over the call of Jesus, that he's decided to value greater than the calling of Jesus. And that is the second mistake that we cannot make. There is no other thing in this world, on this planet, that is more valuable than the call of Jesus. There is nothing. We can search all we want. And in our day, we have the benefit of of looking at all the people in history who have chased these things, who have pursued things that are not the kingdom, that are not discipleship, that are not the call of Jesus, and found them empty. That is what we find outside of Christ, is emptiness. There is no peace that Jesus can offer us outside of himself because he is peace. There is no joy that Jesus can offer us outside of himself because he will always be the greatest joy. Harry Potter wands are a close second, but the joy of Christ himself will always be the greatest joy we can find. The greatest fullness of life that we could find is actually in Jesus' death, which is a strange thing to think about. But it's one of the pieces of discipleship that we must come to understand if we want to follow Christ down this road. The third man, he approaches Jesus similarly to the first. He offers himself to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But first, let me go and say goodbye to the people that are in my household. And Jesus says to him, whoever puts his hand to the plow and yet looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And so this is a very short interaction uh, but it 's very telling interaction. Basically, what this third man has done is that the moment that he becomes willing to give his life to Jesus, the moment he becomes willing to throw in his lot with Christ, is also the moment that he starts putting bricks down in a wall between himself and Jesus. The moment he is willing to follow, to give his life for, to be a part of Jesus life, the moment he is willing to do these things is actually the very moment that he starts building walls, and the moment that he starts separating himself between him and his master. Those two things don't go hand in hand. We cannot begin to follow Christ and also begin to work up walls and fences between us and him. This man offers himself up, he commits to following Jesus, but he also feels obliged to insist on his own terms. He says, I want to do it my way, this man wants to make discipleship about his own convenience. He reduces discipleship to be about human understanding. He makes discipleship about his own schedule. and He makes it a program to suit his own sensibilities. Does that sound familiar to you? Discipleship is not about human understanding. It's not about our schedule. It's not about our own sensibilities. Each of these men, they have underlying assumptions about what discipleship really is. They have predisposed beliefs. When they say, I want to follow you, Jesus, it's Christianese to them. They've seen plenty of people say that to other rabbis. They know that they're supposed to say this to Jesus, but they don't actually know what that means. They don't know what it means because they have not counted the cost. They have found the cost too expensive or they have decided to make the process about themselves. And these are the underlying assumptions that we must avoid. And so today, my sermon is designed to do the same exact thing that Jesus had done for these men, and that's to push back on our underlying assumptions. I'll be honest, I know I used the metaphor of the cookies in the sermon that is kind of half-baked, but but this sermon has probably been cooking in, in me and in my story for two years. It's been something that I've consistently been thinking about and consistently realizing how much I misunderstand and realizing how much more I am like Judas than I am like Jesus and how much more I'm willing to take up the things of the world instead of the things of heaven, how much more willing I am to make discipleship about me, my wants, my sensibilities, my things, instead of Jesus. And this scripture has pushed back on that every moment. It has been difficult, but I want to share that difficulty with you because I love you. I don't have, like, practicals for you today about discipleship. I don't have the three keys to discipleship for you today. Uh, I, I don't have practicals, and that's because discipleship to Jesus isn't, isn't altogether practical. It's, it's not convenient. Discipleship to Jesus is not convenient. It will, it will ask us to give things up. It will ask us to take up other things. It will ask us to put our hand to the plow and not look back. It will ask that of us. But for me to preach a sermon that was like the three D's of discipleship or the three T's of discipleship or something like that would be to fall into the same misunderstanding of the third man. It would be to make discipleship about us and our journey instead of Jesus Christ and his cross. And a discipleship that is not about Christ and his grace is not discipleship. It's not discipleship. And so as we approach discipleship, because I would hope that as a result of what we talk about here today, as a result of what's in the scripture, I pray that, that it would form us and shape us. I think there are three thoughts that have helped me to shape, shape my view of discipleship as a result of this text, other texts, and, and, and simply uh, reading some other books, really, uh, studying in this. There are three thoughts that have been very, very helpful for me that have come out of this text. And, and one is this, is that discipleship is grace and grace is discipleship. These things are mutually exclusive. They're two sides of the same coin. I've used uh, this quote a few different times that I've taught and preached. Uh, It's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he says that that faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin, that that the one who is obedient is faithful. That's faith, and the person who has faith is obedient. They're two sides of the same coin. They're mutually exclusive, and it's the same way with grace and discipleship. Grace is the calling to discipleship, and discipleship is the calling of grace. Another quote from Bonhoeffer is that discipleship is simply the life that springs out of grace. The grace that Christ gives us is a free gift, but it is also transformational. It transforms our heart, it transforms our soul, and it pushes us to discipleship. Grace is a part of every single step we take in discipleship. Grace is the free gift offered. It is water to a parched mouth. It it is water in a desert. It is comfort in our trials. It is freedom from the bondage to our own will. It's freedom from guilt and shame because of that forgiveness. But but we have to understand that, that grace is transformational in effect. And so when I say that it gives us freedom... It's so like I said, it gives us freedom from shame and from guilt, and that's because of the forgiveness. But it also gives us freedom from our, from our own will. It gives us freedom from our own self-chosen way because I promise you our self-chosen way that, that if we could just simply drop all of our obligations and just live life with our own agenda, with our own thoughts, with our own wants, desires, all of those things, it would be a mess. Because, because no matter what, if we live for our own agenda, our agenda might be good for us but we do not know the effect it will have on other people. And very much something that we could intend for good could be ill and evil for another person. And so grace is is the forgiveness and the gift that we freely receive, but it also challenges us to discipleship. It, it, It transforms us to a new way of life. It transforms us to a new way of thinking. Grace is the call to give up our own way and to take up Jesus' way. Grace is the way that we put to death the old creation and we put on the new creation. This is Paul's favorite illustration for how grace changes us, is putting off the old, putting on the new, becoming a new creation in Christ. In fact, in Colossians, Paul says that, that through grace, Jesus has nailed our debt, our sin, all of these things to the cross alongside him, alongside his hands and alongside his feet. And that's why we don't have to carry guilt and shame. We don't have to carry guilt and shame because of the grace that he has offered us. But in the same way, there, there, is a, there is a cheap grace that says, the old creation is forgiven, but you do not need to become a new creation. And that is grace without discipleship. And that grace, which costs Jesus everything, will cost us nothing. Grace its transformation by way of forgiveness, and that transformed life we live is discipleship to Jesus. And so, so as we continue to pursue discipleship, as we continue to talk about it, I think there's another word that's, that's very helpful in this conversation when we talk about discipleship. It, it's, it's, it's helpful to bring our cultural words into play as well. Uh, there's, there's another word uh, that will help us to frame this idea of discipleship and what that really means for us because uh, we, we have to see as followers of Christ that there is a tie between grace and discipleship. That's part of what it means to follow Christ. Uh, but the next process, the next part of the process, is a little bit more nuanced and there's more to it. Uh, so my second point is that discipleship is apprenticeship. Uh, there's this theologian named Dallas Willard. I just finished one of his books. It was fantastic. He didn't coin this term, but he, but he uses it interchangeably, apprenticeship and discipleship. And here's why that word is helpful to use, because we would use it more often in our day, uh, and we kind of at least have a baseline understanding of apprenticeship, and that may be a little bit more accessible than the word discipleship, but they essentially mean the same thing, especially in the scripture. Uh, an apprentice, uh, I, have, I have a definition for you. It'll come up on the screen, but an apprentice uh, is a person who is learning a trade from a skilled employer. And that's about the simplest way we could put this. Now, the skilled employer uh, just so happens to be the son of God. Uh, Jesus has lived life perfectly, and we could take some notes from the guy. Uh, but, but the best illustration I have for this, um, the youth pastor is really coming out in me today, because uh, I'm going to use a Star Wars illustration. Uh, so you're getting Harry Potter, and you're getting Star Wars, and I'm a nerd. So uh, Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars is probably the most cultural, like, it's, it's the most culturally easy way to approach the idea of apprenticeship is because uh, everything about Star Wars is about apprenticeship. The good guys and the bad guys both function on apprenticeship. So you have the Jedi, the good guys, and you have the Sith, the bad guys, and they fight each other all the time. But, but they, they, they function on discipleship is what they do. And so you have the Jedi Master and you have the Jedi Apprentice, all right? And you know what the Jedi Apprentice does? He follows the Jedi Master around and he just does what that Master does and that's the story. That's it. He just walks around doing the same things that the other guy does. You will never see a Jedi apprentice, like, sitting uh, down, like, like at a a desk with somebody lecturing them on the whiteboard, and they're just, like, frantically writing things down. No, they're, like, moving rocks with their minds and stuff, all right? The, The apprentices are just actively following the master around and doing what the master does, and that is discipleship. That is following Jesus. And so when Jesus says to the first man, he says, foxes of dens, birds of nests, but I have no place to lay my head. He's saying, you will also not have a place to lay your head, but to follow me, to follow me, you will take up something greater than your comfort. You will receive back something greater than your comfort. Will it be more difficult to deal with on this side of heaven? Yes, maybe. But it will require giving up our comfort for it but discipleship is simply apprenticeship. It, it is simply doing the things the way that Jesus would have done them. It, it is living our lives as ordinary lives, but doing them in the way that Jesus has done them and would do them. We become representatives of Jesus that, that by the way that we live, the world would see him through us. We become in effect like, like, like the, the way that Jesus' river of life flows. It flows, his goodness flows through his people that it might reach other people. And that's what it means to give up our own way and to take up Jesus' way. And, and so, in this way, uh, th- this is how we need to reframe discipleship. If it's about apprenticeship and if it's about following Jesus and doing the things that he had done, th- then it can't just be about thinking right or, or thinking good thoughts or not saying those words. Uh, it, it becomes a new lifestyle that we model after Jesus. It's, it's not about having the right thoughts. Uh, it's not about having the correct amount of knowledge. Uh, discipleship is not about knowledge. And I think uh, this is probably the deepest misconception that we, uh, in our day, and our culture, at least that I have seen, uh, have. It's the deepest misconception. We, we conflate discipleship and knowledge. We say that they are one and the same. They, they are mutually exclusive. They both mean the same thing. Uh, that knowledge means you're a good disciple and being a good disciple means you grow in knowledge. And so discipleship becomes about how many verses do you have memorized and how many Bible stories do you know and how often do you pray every single day and how many things do you know? Do you know the Greek and Hebrew? All of these things. And discipleship... It's not really those things, but but it's especially dangerous in, in our day right now because we, as a society, worship knowledge. We worship knowledge. It is the great equalizer, and it is also the hierarchy at the same time. That's what knowledge is in our day, right? We use it we use it uh, for people to be equalized, and we also use it to be like, oh, well, you know more than this person, so you deserve this job, and all of these things. We use it to equalize and also to make a hierarchy, and, and we, we worship knowledge. It becomes all of who we want to be and all of who we're asked to become is more knowledgeable, and that is simply not the way that discipleship works. Discipleship is not knowledge, and if you want a really good example of this, uh, John chapter three, the gospel of John chapter three, Jesus and Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, have a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus, really, Uh, and he says, Jesus says, I could reveal all the things to you about the world, but that wouldn't make all the things of the Spirit make sense to you. That's super paraphrased. You should go read that passage. I do not have time to preach it for you, although I very much want to. <laughs> Jesus explains that it is living life by the Spirit and not just our knowledge. That's what it means to follow Him. We model ourselves after that. And so, so discipleship is not knowledge. Discipleship is not good thoughts or good thinking. Discipleship isn't actually behavior modification. Um, it's not about like, you know, you slap your hand if you say that bad word. It's not about behavior modification. Now, all of those things are kind of results. They're kind of byproducts of discipleship, but they are not what actually discipleship is. And so discipleship cannot become social action. Discipleship is not a political leaning. It's none of those things. Discipleship is commitment and allegiance to Jesus himself and walking the way that he walked. It's nothing more than that, and it's nothing less than that. Discipleship is a cross-shaped life. It is a cross-shaped life. It is taking up the way of Jesus. Discipleship means, like I've said multiple times at, at this point, discipleship means leaving our way behind and taking up our cross. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. This is where Jesus famously says this. Then Jesus said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we can taste the kingdom of God right now as we change our lives to be cross-shaped. We're only able to do that by the power of grace. We're only able to do that by the power of grace that Jesus offers us. Only in that way can we transform our lives to be cross-shaped. But we can taste the kingdom. We can taste the kingdom as we begin to treat other people the way that Jesus would have treated them. When we love others as we love ourselves... When we love others the way that Jesus loved us sacrificially, we begin to taste the kingdom and see the kingdom among us. To put our hands to the plow, to put our hands to the plow, like Jesus says to the third man, is to leave our fields behind. We have to leave our way behind in order to take up Jesus' way of life. And I know that at this point in the sermon, you're like, how many times are you gonna ask me to give up something? How many times are you gonna use that phrase? And I'll probably use it a few more times before we're done. But here's why, here's why it means something when we say that there's a cost of discipleship is because we cannot understand the depth and the gravity and the fullness of what we get to take up with Jesus until we have given up the ways of this world. Because, because in the giving up, in the cost that it is of discipleship, we also take up the life that is fueled by Jesus and his grace. There's a beautiful reality. A beautiful reality. Bob Goff has a really interesting quote about discipleship and about, and about our actions, and he says that, that loving people like Jesus is always good theology. Loving people the way Jesus did is always good theology, and so I beg you, I beg you, do not allow your theology and do not allow your discipleship to be the thoughts in your mind, but allow it to be the actions of your hands. Do not allow your discipleship to simply be the Bible study that you go to but allow it to be the way that you live your life as it becomes cruciform like Jesus was on that cross. It becomes a cross-shaped life as we all continuously pick up our crosses together as a community where we find Jesus at the foot of the cross and we pursue him together. Because the life of the kingdom is a life of community. Because we are also each other's reward. The kingdom starts now. We begin to have relationships with each other now that we will carry for. Eternity. The kingdom does not start when we die. The kingdom doesn't start when we get old enough. The kingdom starts now as we pursue Christ together, as we love one another the way that He has loved us. And so the call today is to discipleship. And and, and not the practicals of discipleship necessarily. But the call to give up the world. Give away the world. Give up the way of life that you have now and take up the grace and discipleship that Jesus has offered for us. Jesus tells a parable about this and it's the parable of the pearl in the field. A man goes to a field and he finds a huge and a beautiful pearl and it is so beautiful and so incredible and so amazing that he goes, he sells all that he has to buy the plot of land and he takes the pearl and that is discipleship. It is the pearl that we find that is worth, it is worth giving up the other things. It is the pearl that is discipleship and the discipleship that is grace. So they're mutually exclusive. They're one and the same. And they are a pearl that we cling to that is precious to us, that is life-changing. So that is the call. Take up your cross. Take up the pearl. Bow your heads with me and I'm gonna pray for us.